Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Amanda. And I'm Jason. And welcome to the second episode of FFS, another Brexit podcast where we will be reflecting on the mad week of Brexit, looking forward with the People's Vote campaign and interviewing Momentum's very own Laura Parker. We're still here and we're immensely happy about it. So let's begin. FFS is different and so is this podcast, hopefully. We'll be giving you new voices, diverse perspectives and insider analysis from the next generation of People's Vote activists. There quite simply isn't another podcast like it out there and now we know it. We're very excited to be here today and we have a special second guest lined up for you. This week we have Labour MEP, candidate and Momentum National Coordinator, Laura Parker. She used to be Jeremy Corbyn's political secretary and was a key part of the team which ensured that Momentum and Jeremy Corbyn have consistently and constantly rode to victory in the Labour Party. Perhaps most importantly, Laura was making the case for a people's vote in the Labour Party way before it was called. Laura is an incredible left-wing woman in politics at the moment, fighting for the causes she believes in. The Times have even called her the most powerful woman behind Momentum, so it's amazing to have her on our little old podcast. Her views are very different from that of last week's guest, Ian Dale, so we're excited to hear what she has to say. So in case you didn't listen last week, which you should now go back and do. Yes, please, please do. Uh, A bit about us. FFS started in early 2018 when a group of us were fed up of the male pale staleness of the Brexit debate. We launched FFS with the aim of bringing young, diverse voices to the forefront of the discussion around Brexit. And FFS, another Brexit podcast, is just another way in which we do that. So now on to the section of the podcast where we talk about things that have grabbed our attention in the past week. Ultimately, we're here to offer FFS awards to those people who have done ridiculous things in the context of Brexit. As ever, it's been a busy one. So go on, Jason, what's grabbed your attention over the last week? Uh, What has grabbed my attention? Well, there's been a lot of chat over the last few days about character, um, Obviously, Boris Johnson and his partner, Carrie Simmons, and the altercation that they had late uh, on Friday or Saturday night, whenever it happened. But the thing for me is, even though it's been, uh, you know, front page of most of the tabloids and broadsheet, there is a much bigger issue of character for me in a story that came out in The Guardian on Saturday about uh, Boris Johnson getting help with speeches from Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon is a racist. He is a white supremacist and is dreadful. If we really want to talk about character, in my view, I'm not as interested in Carrie Simmons and I don't really care about what happened that night. What I care about is that our presumptive next prime minister 
consults with white supremacists. That to me is a better indication of the character of a man who should be nowhere near Downing Street. And interestingly, we talked about this with Ian Dale and he said, oh, well, you know, uh, if he's talking to the White House chief of staff, that makes sense. But actually it doesn't make sense in my view. It doesn't make sense to be getting support from a man who is an out and out racist, particularly in the climate of increased hate crime. It's disgusting. So that's my take. That's a better indication of character than him pouring red wine on Carrie Simmons' sofa and not being upset about it. Well, I'm glad we're keeping the podcast positive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you asked me what my, what my take was. That is, that's my take. No, it's a fair enough one. I wouldn't personally write off the Carrie Simmons thing just because something worse has come along. I think it adds more of a, oh, this is our 98th reason in the last 24 hours why Bojo isn't ready for the top job. I but, think that's fair. But there's so many, there's so many other, like the guy threatened to have a journalist assaulted like let's talk about that like the fact that he had an argument with his partner like yeah that's interesting but there's more interesting stuff that shows like he's going around him and jeremy hunt essentially lying to conservative party members about their ability to push through a brexit deal by october 31st or the consequences of no deal like when does that stuff become acceptable why are we just all like just nodding accepting that two prime ministerial candidates are able to get away with that. It's just, it's mad. And look, don't get me wrong, the, the reports of him potentially putting his hands on her, which I think is what the neighbours said they could hear, are obviously outrageous and this nonsense that, you know, the police shouldn't have been called or that there shouldn't have been a recording. You know, I don't put any kind of stock behind that. But what I do think is that we've got to balance attention to that and all of the nonsense with them holding hands in a garden together afterwards with... Actually, here's also a guy who said some pretty homophobic, sexist and racist things and is consulting with a pretty abhorrent guy and that's got nowhere near the same level of attention. Right, so I went into the bubble, the Westminster bubble. Get us out. <laughs> Get us out of the Westminster bubble. What's your take about what's happened this week? So I got up at 5.30am on Saturday morning to travel to Leeds with an incredibly grumpy Richard Brooks for the launch of the Let Us Be Heard summer campaign, which is a nationwide offensive by the whole People's Vote movement to go all across the UK and explain two quite simple things, that there is no mandate for no deal. It absolutely was not what people were told they would get in 2016. And also that the only way, the only clear way now to break the deadlock in Parliament is not getting a new Conservative leader, it is by having a confirmatory referendum. The thing that I liked most about this, actually, was that it summed up everything that I like about the People's Vote campaign, because not only did we hear from John Barnes, Mary Cray MP, Hilary Benn MP, but also the campaign gave as much platform and attention to four brilliant young people and supporters of FFS, Andrew, Amy, Ellie and Jamie, all from outside London, from different areas of the North, and they got to speak and make their case to over a thousand people at New Dock Hall uh, about why young people across the North want a people's vote, because it's not the homogeneous block that everybody says it is, and actually there's quite a big 
variance of opinion, but also there's quite a large support uh, for a people's vote. And I think most importantly, and Piers Morgan will never admit this, but I think it was quite impressive that we had three people from across the north who voted leave, have now seen the facts and have seen that what they thought they were getting and what they thought they were getting for their families is just absolutely not going to be delivered. It isn't delivered in Theresa May's deal. It won't be delivered by a Boris Johnson uh, Prime Minister, and they've changed their minds and they want a uh, people's vote to vote Remain. Well, heroes. They're great. They are uh, great. Should we try and get Piers Morgan on this podcast? I would love to, but if we do that, <laughs> we are getting a load of uh, Remainer now, which is what they call themselves in, to interview him because he just goes on every week saying, no one's changed their mind, the people of the North won't leave, you're betraying the working class, blah, blah, blah. And one, he's wrong. But two, he can't prove it. And I think we could actually prove him wrong. So open invitation, isn't it? Piers Morgan, join us. Also, reply to my tweet. <laughs> <laughs> what did you tweet at him? I sent him a photo of the three Remainer Nows addressing a thousand song crowd in uh, Yorkshire. What, and he ignored you? I mean, I'm not Even more reason to hate Piers Morgan. <laughs> um, it's also, it's been a pretty good week for us. You talked about for FFS activists, young people speaking at the event. Uh, more broadly, we've been in the media quite a bit, which is exciting. So you've had yeah. Ellie and Jamie on BBC Look North on their bulletins and also Rania Ramley, the legend that is, Rania Ramley, who's chair of uh, Labour Students and an FFS supporter, giving us a shout out on Politics Live. What a hero. What a Absolute hero. Absolute hero. Shout out to Rania as well. Yeah. Rania and Piers Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> We now move on to Onwards for Fuck's Sake, where we take a look at all the fun things that FFS will be doing in the upcoming week, both with the People's Vote campaign and on our own. So, Jason, what is coming up? Well, we are continuing with the Let Us Be Heard campaign. So we're going to rock up in Cheltenham this week on Saturday, 29th of June. So Vince Cable will be joined by hosts of other speakers from all political parties, local people, activists, FFS. And from FFS, I'm incredibly excited to announce that doing her debut as one of our campaigners is the excellent Hillary from Bristol Students' Union, who is low-key fabulous, and it's her first ever event speaking for FFS, so I'm quite excited personally. Why is she only low-key fabulous? Uh, High-key fabulous. (laughs) 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 We are where we are. She's up. She's got to listen to this as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. You are high-key fabulous. We're also looking to influence the debate within the Labour Party. We're all always looking to influence the debate within the Labour Party. So FFS activists are submitting motions. If you would like to grab a motion, visit our website, ffsakes.uk. Make the arguments in local CLPs, uh, sign our joint petition with Scram News, demand that Labour clearly supports a people's vote. Yes, let's leave that fence in 2018, shall we? It's 2019, time to come out and out for a referendum. Destroy the fence. So today we're very excited to have Laura Parker with us from Momentum. Laura is the national coordinator of Momentum and was a Labour MEP candidate in London in the recent EU elections. Yeah, it was a great success. Yeah, yeah. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll unpick that. Um, she also used to be Jeremy Corbyn's political secretary. So I'm sure you'll have a lot of interesting insights. Yeah, which Welcome. you may get. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. No, thank you for coming along. Definitely. Yeah, this is great. Um, so Laura, our first question is the same one we're going to ask all of our podcast guests. You're our second guest. I know. I'm very excited after Ian Dale. What company? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's <laughs> eclectic. You're going up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we are going up. Um, <laughs> if you could give an FFS award to someone for something ridiculous that they've done in the context of Brexit, 
Who would you give it to and why? Well, look, I thought long and hard about this. Obviously, there's lots of contenders, but in the end, I've decided to give it to some furniture. Interesting. I was not expecting that. I would (laughs) like to give it to the empty chair that's replacing Boris Johnson in his Mm. leadership campaigns. Nice. And to the table, which all of Labour's policy options are still sitting on. Oh, Laura Parker, that's... (laughs) I see where you're going with this now. I was a bit confused when you said furniture and I was like, okay. I enjoyed that a lot. So I think we'll probably come back to both of those a little bit later on. But you're a fully signed up supporter of having a people's vote. But I would suggest maybe not a complete sign-up supporter of the People's Vote campaign. Uh, Yeah, so I'm in that camp of people who really struggled with the referendum result. Mm. I mean, I voted Remain. I campaigned very ardently for Remain and I was really gutted when uh, Remain didn't win. But I didn't wake up the day after and think, right, how do we reverse it? Um, I, I argued pretty much with everybody, including my husband, who's Italian, which I tell everybody, my European (laughs) credentials. But I argued very strongly that we should trigger Article 50. And I think probably at some point back in 2016, 2017, I was persuadable to some sort of soft Brexit. I mean, again, heavy heart and all the rest of it. But, you know, the democratic argument for me did weigh very heavy, even though I thought the referendum was really flawed. But I'm definitely in that camp of people who... Now, over time, I think we've seen, you know, the Tories' hard lines, their inability to compromise, the blockage in Parliament. I don't see any other way out than a public vote. I would always frame it in terms of a confirmatory vote on a deal, which I realise is a bit of a gobful. Um, The people's vote with the big P and the big V, the campaign itself, I I suppose I've got mixed feelings about it. I mean, on the one hand, just purely objectively, I think it's remarkable that so many people have been Mm mobilised. I mean, I marched against the Iraq war and I marched before that uh, to ban the bomb in the 80s and on the People's March for Jobs. And this is the only thing that's come close to those sorts of numbers. People getting coaches from, you know, Leeds and Cumbria and Carlisle and doing overnight train journeys because they cared so much about something. So I think anyone who does say that they're a Democrat should should just welcome that in and of itself. That's remarkable. I think the mobilisation of so many young people, I mean, obviously there's you guys, there's OFOC, there's lots of young people involved in the PV campaign more generally. I think I think that's brilliant. I, you know, I mean, I'm on the left. I've got some problems with the way the referendum campaign was run in 2016. And I think some of those mistakes are probably being repeated through the PV campaign. I mean, it looks and feels kind of quite white in general, a bit middle class, a bit Lib Demi. It, it's churlish to criticise the people who are campaigning because after all they're the ones who could be bothered to campaign so that I, you know it's not about the people who are supporting PV but in order for PV to become a winning campaign for the actual PV with little letters then it would have to look and feel I think quite different and I think it needs different political messaging and you know it's problematic for some people to accept a leadership which in parts has been very critical of, you know, the Labour leadership. I mean, I believe most people who back a, you know, my mates who back a people's vote want a public vote and they don't really care actually uh, who's running it or which bit of Labour it is or which bit of Lib Dems it is. But, you know, there's some people who I think have probably used it for other other motives and I just think that's not been helpful. So I don't want to be unequivocally critical, but I think there's a next phase coming when the argument for PV, little P, little V has been one. And then I think the next phase has got to be something a bit different. 
I think that's, I genuinely think that's quite interesting because, I mean, obviously, literally part of the reason we even started FFS was because the entire Brexit debate, all opinions, was just male, pale, stale, and dull, apart from anything. But I think the one thing that's really struck me, and obviously I'm slightly inside the bubble in it, I guess, is that the people who were kind of on Team PV do reflect on their own shortcomings quite a lot. And they Mm. do kind of say, absolutely can't have an all-male panel. Like I would pay to see the ERG not have an all-male panel. (laughs) But I think I'm quite confident that when we get to a referendum, those learnings, both from 2016, but also from like the last year, you could say, of campaigning will be taken yeah, into well, account. Look, that, that's, I really, hope anyway. that's really encouraging because I think the challenge now, of course, is not continuing to shore up the people who are already convinced because they're already convinced. And 2016, what we know about that referendum result was that it was lost for us by people who didn't normally vote and came out and voted to leave. So part of the way to win any campaign is to persuade people who don't normally vote to vote, but to vote to remain and to persuade the waverers and to persuade people who ummed and ahed and in the end fell on the side of leave. It's not just to reconvince my kind of middle-aged, middle-class architect mates who are living in Islington because they're already convinced. And I think, you know, it's a campaign that's got to be really vibrant regionally. It's got to be across the country. I mean, yeah, the white thing is a problem, you know, it's a very, very diverse country that we live in. I'm sick of listening to this thing about, you know, the Northern working classes who voted remain in some monolithic white blob, which is just not true because in fact, BAME communities are the single hardest remain voters. But again, you know, the remain campaign has got to reflect that. I think, so speaking as a middle-aged middle class woman, I think, you know, the class diversity, the campaign's got to broaden a little bit. So, you know, but it, but that's just, yeah, it's stuff to learn and, and, and build on. So I certainly wouldn't want to be down as an, as an unequivocal critic because I think, uh, you know, and the other thing is lots of us on the left have thought we need to mobilise and it's been a difficult journey for us. And I've had lots of discussions with people in Big P, Big V, and I sort of said, hang back, hang back. You know, it's not helping. And at various points they said, well, that's all very well and good. <laughs> but if no one else is saying anything, mm. yeah. you can't expect us to stay silent. And actually that's fair enough. Well, can I, let's jump into that a bit. One, to what extent do you think uh, the left, in inverted brackets, still, um, inverted brackets? It's inverted commas, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, we can well, have an inverted it. bracket. What's an inverted bracket? I have no idea. Bracket the wrong way around. It's just nonsense. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> the kind of thing that Boris Johnson would say. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But he'd get away with it because he's a posh white dude it's and true, he's twice true, your age. I'm, I'm not, certainly. <laughs> um, but uh, to what extent is the People's Vote campaign, the official campaign, viewed as a centrist coup still at the moment is is that softening or is there still concerns that this is all just a a front to get out look i think it depends who you ask when you ask and and what their other motives are definitely it has been seen that way probably fading a bit but i think the more important thing is that other bits of this jigsaw are are sort of outing themselves because in the end one campaign can't win because mm. one campaign cannot speak to the white-haired retiree former army general in the shires and the mother of three who's holding down two jobs in newcastle it's going to have to be a kind of constellation i think so 
I think it's not so much that people are changing their view about the big P, the big V. It's just they're becoming more confident themselves that this is the right thing to do. And so, you know, people that love socialism hate Brexit, which mm. is driven by a group of MPs from definitely the left of the Labour Party. They've mm. kind of emerged. Yeah. You know, you've got Labour for a PV. You've got Another Europe is Possible, which was there right from yeah, yeah, the very yeah. beginning. So, I mean, I hope in the end... This, I mean, it's unlikely it's going to be one big happy family, but at least kind of neighbours agreeing to live in the same neighbourhood and find a way of sort of ish working together. Yeah. Oh, I like that analogy. Yeah. It's like a good a thing lot. to aim for, I think. Yeah. Civil neighbours. Civil neighbours. Um, and, and just, I guess, in terms of momentum more broadly and the extent to which you feel as though you've been able to direct momentum towards pushing for a people's vote frustrations progress what's your yeah look that's been a really that's been really interesting because momentum has the same um complexities embedded in it as the labor party does Mm. and actually broadly speaking when we surveyed our membership in autumn last year they had very similar views to most of the labor party about brexit i think 82 percent said they basically thought it was a bad idea 97 percent said they wanted to unilaterally defend the rights of eu citizens if i ever find the three percent who didn't say that they're in trouble (laughs) they're out of the menu exactly i agree don't worry (laughs) i've had it um 41% believed in a public vote in all circumstances, which is perhaps not quite the same as, as, you know, the whole of the party. But if you look at the number who supported a public vote, if there's no general election, and remember this is six months ago, I think that was 53%. um, And then a significant number were kind of undecided. In a way, that's just the Labour Party. Obviously, there are different dynamics in terms of perhaps people's prioritization of issues. So there are, you know, I have friends as well who say that their number one issue is Brexit. And if they can also have a Labour government, great. Then there are some who say it's got to be a Labour government. And if I can stop Brexit, great. I personally am in the world which says I'd like both those things. And I don't see why I have to be forced to choose. And in fact, I think the success of a Labour government, probably, you know, staying in the EU is is integral to it. Um, but I also don't want to bin everything about the Corbyn project. Mm. I don't mean just because of Brexit, because obviously it's an enormous issue. So I think people are making those same calculations and perhaps the only difference between momentum and you know other bits of the party, like our neighbours from the Progress Office next door, is that they just draw their line in a slightly different place. Mm. You know, the, the weight that they would give to Brexit is, you know, is, is probably just a bit different. My own ability to influence, I mean, you know, I'm just one amongst many. I'm the I'm the leader of the staff team, but we've got an elected governing body. And ultimately, they're the people who drive the big kind of headline political issues in the organization. And we surveyed our membership because the governing body decided that that's what we do. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I have little bits of influence around the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Do you think, do you think Momentum should have done more over the last year? To push, I mean, and when I say that, I mean, do you think Momentum should have done more to push the Labour Party position? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, suppose the real question there is, should the Labour Party leadership have moved more? Because it's highly unlikely that the group which is closest to the Labour Party leadership is just going to branch out in a completely different direction. Sure. So I would have liked the leadership to have moved uh, more decisively earlier. So what do you think standing in their way? Well, genuinely, I think it begins back with the commitment to, you know, you said you're going to honour the result of the election and actually looking like you meant it. And although it's very easy for uh, the Lib Dems and the the non-aligned and the smaller parties uh, 
to say otherwise. You know, if the Labour Party hadn't tried to be a party representing the whole the whole country, then who was? Because the Tories have unequivocally taken the 52%. And in fact, they've taken the most extreme bit of it. So there are many Tory voters feeling kind of quite homeless. The Lib Dems are with the 48. Uh, the Greens are, are basically with the 48, although I think they've always had a more intelligent way of articulating it. Obviously, Chuck and Tig or whatever they're called now, they've gone sort of with the 48ers as well. But this is the official opposition, which has an unwritten constitutional role about providing the official opposition, which had no choice, for example, but to enter into the negotiation talks. So that's that's been the major the major drag. And, and then obviously the complexity of the result for Labour, because we had, you know, lots of people who vote Labour voted to leave. And I think any intelligent analysis of why we ended up with Brexit has to take into account the fact that, uh, I mean, for me, most of this was really about people saying, whoa, I'm here, don't forget me. I've been left behind. My wages have been stagnant for 10 years. My bus fare, I mean, think some stuff came out last week. You know, my bus fare costs five times more because I live in Cumbria than it does if I lived in yeah. in London. And these people were fed up. And these are people that Labour absolutely, you know, ha- has to has to gain the trust of these communities because, I mean, only the Labour Party, in my view, has got the political... Uh, agenda, which would meet the needs of these communities. So, you know, that's just been genuinely really complex. And it's often, you know, it's often distilled to some narrow electoral calculation, but I think it's more profound than that. I think it's about, you know, what the Labour Party wants to do for the country. And, and, you know, we see now in the Tory party leadership race, I mean, it's just a lie that it's this simple. I mean, you guys Mm. know, because this Mm. is what you do. It's just a nonsense that Brexit is that easy. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, so, it's absurd looking at the simplicity. Of the it's absurd. Now, where we got it wrong was we didn't manage to communicate the complexity in a simple way, because you can communicate complex things in a simple way. The, the mere fact of it being complicated doesn't mean you have to tie yourself a pin and knot. But even then, you know, on the doorstep in the election, I mean, I could see my, lib, you know, the Lib Dem would knock on the door and go, hi, I'm anti-Brexit. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, the Tory would knock on the door and go, hi, I'm pro-Brexit. I'd go, hi, have you got five minutes whilst I give you three paragraphs? Yeah. So just just on this, I guess one of the frustrations I personally have had, so on the one hand, I can understand the political reality of, you know, you've got MPs and leave voting seats, you've got to somehow keep them on board. Or as the official opposition, you've got to find a way of uniting the country, the government aren't looking to do that. On the other side, it feels as though part of the appeal of Jeremy and the reason why momentum was formed to support um, the leadership was, you know, here's a guy who acts out of principle and who's prepared to listen to the membership uh, when, you know, decisions are being taken. And to me, on the principle front, it's clear that Brexit will be a disaster for the people that the party was formed to serve. And also in terms of the membership, it's been clear for a while that they're in a completely different space. So it would be interesting to get your take on on that because the kind of appeal mm. of Jeremy seems to go against what his approach has been on Brexit for the last two and a half, three years. Yeah, look, I think simple authenticity has taken a hit, you know? There's no there's no way around it. I think, you know, I think that the party as a whole, it's, it's struggled in a way because there's been an attempt, to, you know, I think Jeremy genuinely wanted to find a consensus way through. And again, that's kind of where I was for a long time. And actually, uh, you know, ultimately 
it, it's an in-out thing. And there isn't, there isn't really, <laughs> there isn't really a Blairite third way on this. <laughs> and I think you're right that um, it, but I don't think it's lack of principle. I think it's a series of competing principles. And, you know, in the, in the hierarchy of what counts, does honouring the result of people who are largely fed up and might not have voted before in 2016 count more or less than your membership when you've talked about developing a member-led party? Um, th th there's no easy way around. I, I mean, the big lesson is, you know, you can't keep all the people happy all the time. I think that th there was a point a few months ago, perhaps, when actually, you know, the story should have just been told that, you know, we, we did do the right thing. We honoured the result. We've tried to make it work. Uh, we've all learned a lot more. And now, given all these, these various complexities, the only thing that I can now fall upon is the point of principle. But then which principle is it? Is it that you wanted to listen to the people in 2016 or that you think that Brexit's a bad idea? I find that quite interesting when you're talking about, like, honour quite a lot because... One, I think it's something that has been kind of thrown out the window by a lot of the elected leaders, maybe, in this country mm. right now. But I read a while ago just a line in an article that was, you don't hear Democrats in America talking about a migrant's first wall. And I think that was the bit where I had the most difficulty with the Labour Party when they were talking about a jobs first Brexit. Because to me, and I mm. say it all the time, grew up in like North Cornwall, so literally all of my friends and family voted to leave. Mm. And to them, honouring the result of a referendum is their lives getting better. It's not actually, if I think mm. if they were really really honest it's not actually leaving the European Union so like if the Labour Party were to say we're honouring the result we're leaving I don't think they would see that as the Labour Party or any party honouring the result if that makes sense but I do just want to ask because we get asked yeah it, quite it does a lot. make it does make sense by the way yeah, yeah. and we, we get asked it quite a lot about like MPs in you know like quite senior positions maybe in like the shadow cabinet who break the whip or abstain or whatever and I think in particular a lot of our young people have really picked up on Ian Lavery as like the chair of the party now I'm aware he's got some very like strongly held views about the campaign the people's vote campaign but I think to young people who are looking at the Labour Party if the chair of the Labour Party can continuously not back what they see as like what their party should absolutely be backing they see that as a really dishonourable thing and I wasn't sure if you had a thought <laughs> or reflection on that? I think probably the role of the chair of the party should be to transcend actually taking either side. So I think it's not that your right. mates would have to look at him and go, well, he's on our side. It's that they'd look at him and go, this is the honest broker. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I see a what you like mean the speaker. there. Yeah. Now, although the speaker's a bad example, because of course the speaker's been quite party pre as well, which well, has yeah. probably mm. worked in our favour, to be honest. Ciao, John Berger. Never thought I'd <laughs> say that. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, it's really interesting talking to MPs. I did ask one the other day, like a good, solid left MP. In the end, what was the single biggest thing that drove MPs and and I'm, I'm really not cynical. So I'm, and I'm just not, I'm, I'm not hardwired that way. And I kind of wish I were more. Um, my husband always laughs at me because in any explanation of anything that's gone wrong, he'll go straight for conspiracy. And I always go for mm. cock up. <laughs> but I said <laughs> to this, this MP friend of mine, you know, is it just keeping your seat? And he said, yep. And it is really frustrating. I think particularly for younger people who are kind of told this is a big moment. It's a big decision. Half of them didn't get to vote anyway, or whatever proportion it must now be of 18 year olds today's electorate obviously three years of them didn't didn't get to vote yeah. 
It must be really frustrating to think that somewhere buried in Southwest One is someone whose major calculation is whether they get to keep yeah. their apparently quite nice salary. We're sadly running out of time, but I wanted to ask, based on the Euros, and... <laughs> it was great fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, the pe- I feel bad. Yeah, I know. Um, but what are your main takeaways from those elections? And looking ahead, you know, how do you think that should influence Labour's position? Any kind of prediction on Labour and the broader Brexit process? in part from your learning from... Well, look, I've long ago given up on predictions. I went to work for Jeremy three weeks before the referendum. So, um, but on the election campaign, I think one thing for me was really heartening is that a lot of Labour members from across the city, obviously I was campaigning in London and and from across different bits of the party were really enthusiastic about campaigning, like young people. This one woman I met down in um, Woolwich on a Thursday lunchtime, I think, campaigning. And she trogged all the way up to Chingford and Woodford Green two days later to kind of take little videos. And she was interested in Europe. And people were interested. And, you know, we gave out this ridiculous leaflet that talked about local government stuff. And people say, well, you know, what's this? They wanted to act, they wanted to talk about Europe. Mm. We're yeah. much more EU mm. literate than we were three years ago, which is good. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a shame that it's now. A bit late, but we are. Where we are. It's taken chaos <laughs> Better to late there. than never. Yeah. The other thing for me was that, like, the, the manifesto of the European Socialist Party, which obviously we all stood on as well as the the Labour one, was brilliant. Like if that could just be translated into some little five pledge card, I mean, minimum wage across the across the continent, no zero hours contracts, all of the climate change commitments. I mean, this is stuff that like the young generation yeah, definitely. care about. And it means something. Yeah. And I think if we could translate some of those commitments into, you know, the Uber strike that's continent wide, the strike of, you know, McDonald's workers from Berlin to Bolton to Barcelona... And, and most of those people will be young people. Um, but that's, that was really heartening. People were interested in talking about politics. Big, big lesson on the other side of the ledger. We're only going to win if we campaign. And, you know, I tried my hardest. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Heloise Todd was up there in Yorkshire yeah, and Claire yeah. Moody was down there in your bit of the world in yeah. the Southwest. And, you know, but the Labour Party needs to put its full machine behind the next effort. Really. Do you think, yeah. and I think... I already have my conclusion about this, but do you think the shadow cabinet are paid, well, paid attention to that result and to the feedback from people on the doorstep saying, look, we're talking about local issues, but actually people want to talk about Europe and they want to talk about Brexit. And, you know, for the majority of people you're trying to get to vote Labour, they want to talk about a referendum. But do you think the shadow cabinet have learned from that? Or do you yeah. think they're continuing to sit on the fence? Yeah, I think they've learned. Do you? I think the fence is wobbling. Wow, Okay. Interesting. The fence is wobbling. I think that that mythical table will become a bit more real. Okay. And some of the options will be removed from it. I'm optimistic. Yeah. Okay. I am optimistic. Maybe I'm pessimistic. We were saying last week our podcast might be too pessimistic. Yeah, me no, and Jason this, doing this, it. This is, this is the optimism we need. <laughs> no, I'm so not, I'm yeah, no, it's good. The, the fence is wobbling. The table is yeah, that's w- co- wobbling too. <laughs> and, and Boris Johnson is apparently, this is now obviously complete codswell. Boris Johnson is also making model buses. Did you hear that today? Oh, I heard that. No, I was Just to, sorry, just sorry, to continue the furniture theme, Boris Johnson declared today that his hobby was making model buses right. out of wine crates. I right. think he I think he did that on purpose to wind people up about the 350 million <laughs> on a bus. Like, I think he calculates everything he does. Um, I'm getting evils from Richard Brooks, which must mean that we are out of time. But we want to say genuinely, thank you so much oh, for coming you. on. You were completely different to Ian Dale, which is not a surprise, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what yeah, I hope you, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you no, enjoyed. it was great. Thank you so much. I 
maybe come back again in six months' time. We'll Please see do. where we are. Yeah, hopefully your optimism will be. <laughs> you could have rewarded. me and Ian Dale in conversation. Can you imagine? I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> With Piers Morgan asking the question. Yeah. <laughs> have I lost my job in this? Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> anyway, no, thank you so much for joining us, and no, we'll definitely try and have you back soon. Great, thank Bye. you. Bye. So that's it. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of FFS, another Brexit podcast. Please do visit iTunes and give us a good rating. Five stars. <laughs> Probably sound like an Uber driver. Yeah, a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please give us five stars <laughs> and a nice comment. Um, tune in next week for our next installment of Reverent Questions, Random Musings uh, and the Raising of Voices, which are unheard in the Brexit debate. 